Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP, Philadelphia, and online at gtownradio.com. This is What Do You Know About That? A radio show about anything and everything happening in our community, our city, and our world. Here are your hosts, Eric Gershnow and Mary Angela Saavedra. All right, welcome everyone for another episode of What Do You Know About That? Happy Thursday, Mary Angela. Hey, happy Thursday, Eric. How are you? I'm doing all right. So for our listeners out there, Mary Angela is actually, if you notice, is remote today. Where are you today, <laughs> Mary Angela? I'm downstairs in my office because I have the Rona. So we're, we're quarantining from each other, which means... I'm I'm calling in on the Zoom from another floor of the house because <laughs> this is the world we live in now. But yep, only a few more days we'll make it through. Well, yep, we will. We will. We're here at the end. And speaking of the end, this is our last episode of 2022. That's right. Almost yeah, a happy it, new year. Yeah. Next time, next time we're on the air, it will be 2023. It'll be a whole new year, and things I'm, I'm will here be. For it. Will they be different? Will they be the same? Who knows? Stay tuned to find out. So um, how's this holiday season treating you, Eric? Well, so far, you know, I was just going to say, despite being ill, it's probably okay, given the fact that the weather outside is particularly cold. So I'm just really enjoying staying indoors as much as possible. we got a lot of travel coming up. I personally came back from a lot of travel, so trying to maximize the home time as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Well... Tell us what was happening this day in science. So, this day in science, December 22nd, Thursday in 2017, rainbow peacock spiders inspire new technology. Whoa. An international team of scientists led by experts from Ghent University released the results of their study into the dazzling Australian rainbow peacock spider, which, though only 1 to 5 millimeters long, may provide huge advantages in optical technology. Specifically, researchers say the spider's iridescence during courtship prompted them to look more closely at exactly how the arachnid produces its technicolor displays. They found that unique scales on the spider's abdomen allow the insects to isolate independent wavelengths of light with more finesse and precision than even the most advanced technology of the time. Right? Mother Nature always showing up. All right, you heard me. The team hopes further insight into the flamboyant spiders will help to spur unprecedented advances in our ability to produce and fine-tune optical spectrometers and other related technologies. Hmm. Hmm. Let me tune my spectrometer to the spider. Hold on, really quick. (laughs) Wow, I mean... Ew, spiders. But they sound like pretty darn cool spiders. Why have we never heard of these spiders before? I don't know. Well, you heard about them here. I guess This so. day in science. What, what year was that? That was 2017. I'm sure they're much older. You know, I look forward to digging into the past a little bit beyond maybe, maybe say, just something other than the 21st century. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just mean we discovered them in 2017. Well, I guess maybe that's when scientists started studying them. That's when they them. started studying them, right? Gotcha, gotcha. They, they didn't like, just show up in 2000. Right, they are like, hey, okay. everybody, we're here. Right, yeah. <laughs> they they came right. from a distant planet. Maybe not. 
I mean, they do sound pretty cool, and yeah, I mean, mm. I'm sure they're a spectacle to look at. I bet you. I bet yeah, you. Indeed. I mean, if there was such a thing as a good spider, because I think all spiders are awful. But if there was, if I was going to name a spider good, oh come on, hello, this would pest one control. that's got pretty colors, right? Would pest probably control. be. No, although, I do not like spiders. Although I was watching an episode of the Survivor show, was it Naked and Afraid or whatever? You're like out mm-hmm. in the wilderness, and then these it was this couple, and they're like on a tropical island, and there's like tarantulas all over crawling nope. around, and sure enough, nope. someone got bit. Nope, nope, yep. big bag yep. it out. Exactly. Nope. No, thank you. All anyway. right, just stay inside. Just stay inside. Woohoo! All right, so what's what's going on in the neighborhood despite the fact that you've been locked up? You're still actively <laughs> checking out what's what's coming through the feed. I am. I am. And um and actually there's some really interesting things this week that have popped up. I specifically started paying close attention to the Germantown Facebook groups because I was like, hey, they're always pretty active around this time of year with, you know, new stuff coming up. And something interesting that popped up, which I was unaware of so i was really glad that i read this is there's a new septa ketix program it's in its beta version but you can um, download the app right now and be using it so when you want to get on a septa train right now right you either have to have a septa card or you have to buy like a quick trip right you have to go to the kiosk and mm-hmm. you have to buy buy a quick trip which means if you don't have a septa card you can't do anything digitally on your phone you have to go to a kiosk And did away with tokens forever ago. And you can no longer like slide money into the slot. It's like a whole thing. So what they're doing now is this this pilot program, this Septa Ketix, which is a digital app for your phone where you could buy quick trips on your phone and you get a barcode that you can then scan like you would a key card to get you onto the train. And you could do this up to 10 trips at once. So let's say you and four of your friends are trying to go down to South Philly for a game, right? You're going to a hockey game or some some sport complex game, okay? Normally, you'd all have to go wait in line and get your quick trip tickets unless you happen to be a person who takes SEPTA all the time and you have a key card, then you just use your travel wallet and you go. But let's say you're not. You're just the casual, once in a while, SEPTA person who doesn't want to drive downtown, so you're going to SEPTA, you're going to take the train Hello. to go. Yeah, right, exactly. Guilty's charged. You. Yeah, you and four of your friends. Well, now you would have this app on your phone and um, you would then go and and buy or manage your tickets. You'd be like, I need four tickets for me and my four friends. And you would buy four tickets and then you would activate all four of them and you would get four barcodes. You could then just scan to get yourself through the turnstile onto the Broad Street line. So directly from your phone. Correct. Oh, that's you don't have... really convenient. Right. You don't because... The quick trip tickets are like a printed little piece of paper. If you lose it, that's lost money, right? Yeah. You can't you can't get back. That's your your quick trip. It's it's gone, and now you have to buy another one, or you buy a key card from that kiosk, right? And you have to pay five dollars for a key card. And goodness help you if you and lost lose that, key that card, card before you registered yep. it, right? So this is this is a new way, um, and this is very much Philadelphia stepping into the twenty first century here. Like, I mean, this is I'm I'm excited for this. I mean, it I makes have, so much sense. Yeah, I mean, I have a key card, right? I've had three of them because I have lost two of them. But because I use key cards so often, I have the app. And when I lose a key card, I just hot list it. And then I take that money and I move it over to a new key card and I activate that. And it's fine now. 
But that took years to get to that part of the program. It mm -hmm. used to be if you lost a key card, you had to hot list that money and then you had to go get a new key card physically and go in person to a kiosk person to transfer your money over. It used to be terrible. So my point is, is that we're finally getting to this point where SEPTA is like, we want people to ride the SEPTA. We should probably make this easier. <laughs> well, it's like, easier yeah. for them, too, because now they're yeah. not having to have systems in place to manage yep. these cards. And yep. you're taking advantage of the fact that people have phones. So in, in terms of, I guess, capital expenditures, you know, consumables, all that stuff, that goes away. So it's just yep. all digital. That's brilliant. Yeah. So you do need to sign up for a SEPTA key account. That's the app, right? The SEPTA key card app which would be on your phone or your android your or your iphone and from there once you create your septa key account you can buy or manage tickets and when you buy your tickets you can select how many tickets you want to buy you can buy up to 10 of them in one transaction you can activate up to five of them at a time so you and five you and four friends can get on the subway at once so like when my mom came to visit and we all went down and used the train right i was passing you know, I had to, everybody had to buy their own quick trip card and it was this whole process getting us all on. I'd just be able to scan my phone in four times to get everybody on. So I think it's great. Check it out, everybody. We can, we can use the SEPTA now much more conveniently. Right now it is only available for the Broad Street line, the Market Frankfurt line, the, um, uh, the Norristown high speed line. Those are the three lines that are using it right now and the buses. It's a pilot pilot program for um buses trolleys the broad street line the market frankford line and the north okay. line. yeah because yeah. i'm assuming they have to install like new kiosks or something that allows people to scan the scan code. the barcode yep on their phone yep, yep. you got it you that's got really it. cool though hey way to go yeah. philly i know well, i was real excited about that yeah. um the other thing i was very excited to find out about is that the philadelphia midwife collective has been working on getting a birthing center up here in Northwest Philadelphia and um, specifically in Germantown. And they have um, finally started moving on a piece of property that they bought just pre-pandemic. Um, and it got hauled up and, you know, held up and like it does all kinds of paperwork and red tape, but um, it is and fundraising. But it's finally got enough money, and it's they're starting renovations on the property, and it is looking like it's sort of full steam ahead. And this is very exciting for this area because, um, I mean, as you know, Chestnut Hill Hospital does not have a department for birthing babies, right? They closed their, their um, childbirthing department, I guess, years ago. And a lot of smaller hospitals tend to do that. So people really had to travel in order to have children. And I don't know how much you know about birthing centers, but they are very hot right now. We have family members who you just but recently had a child in the birthing center. That's not like something that's out of pocket expense, right? Um, not necessarily. So birthing centers get a lot of different kinds of monies from different organizations and because they're midwives and they're not doctors it's not quite the same it's it's it is affordable it is um there's a lot of uh i don't know all of the, the the super ins and outs of it but i do know that people are trending toward having their children at birthing centers rather than hospitals because it isn't as expensive because you can get good hmm. quality um care and help i mean you know like i said we have family members who literally just had their first child 
at a full-fledged birthing center. And it's nice to see one opening up here. And this is one, again, is going to be at 245 East Johnson Street. So it's right here in Germantown. It's going to be really nice uh, location to get people from kind of all around. And they raised a lot of money uh, to help renovate this uh, house that they purchased. And it will have a lot of health services for women and new mothers. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. So that's going on in the neighborhood. Um, That's all I got. What is our main topic for this week's episode? Well, I'm glad you asked. So last time we chatted, you taught me lots of things about Hanukkah, mm-hmm. which I thought was very cool. So it seemed only fitting um, that I talk about Christmas. Well, <laughs> I kind of put you on the spot last episode, too. I was <laughs> like, yeah, this is what you're going to talk about next week. So, Well, I mean, I think I did a little bit of that last year, um, but... I I thought I could come at it from kind of a different angle this time. Right. You were talking very specifically about the holiday. And so I thought, yeah, like what, let's talk about Christmas in America and how, how did we get here? And the origins of Christmas in America, you know, or other countries, but yeah, like where, where did this holiday come from? So I found this fantastic article called a brief history of Christmas. So I'm going to give you a brief history of Christmas. Are you ready? All right. I mean, let's start first by you telling me what you know about Christmas. What do you know about Christmas? (laughs) Well, there's lots of white and there's lots of red and there's lots of money being spent and lots Mm -hmm. of wrappings made out of paper. It's a big commercial smorgasbord. There's the religious aspect of Christmas and the birth of Christ. Aside from that, my perception has totally just been destroyed by modern American capitalism. The modern story or the fairy tale of Christmas, the fable, that was like many of the things we talked about was probably birthed towards the end of the 19th century. And then, and I forget who's the, it was Twas a Night Before Christmas, right? That was the, mm-hmm. the poem. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was, I think, really the ushering in of, of what I would say modern Christmas. And then you had this movement when you have radio in the early 20th century and you had folks capitalizing through these Christmas tunes and that you hear to this very day just about anywhere you go during the holiday season. You will hear all the classics, the Bing Crosbys. It's true. Yeah. It's true. Well, that's quite a bit. I mean, you do know quite a bit, but but you didn't really touch on where where it all truly started. So let's talk about the origins of Christmas. The origins of Christmas stem from both the pagan and the Roman cultures. Right. So um, it's both. The Romans actually celebrated two holidays in the month of December. The first was Saturnalia, which was a two-week festival honoring their god of agriculture, Saturn. And on December 25th, they celebrated the birth of Mithra, their sun god. Both celebrations to no one's surprise, because they were Romans, were raucous and drunken parties. They were like, people were just 
Because that's what you Poly- do. Right. Drinking a whole lot. <laughs> they didn't and have television back then. Right, exactly. It was a big, raucous party. What are we going to do? Uh, I don't know. We're going to eat and drink a lot. Let's do that. Right. So that's the Romans. That's what the Romans are doing. Now, the pagans in December, the darkest day of the year falls, right? So the pagan cultures lit bonfires and candles to keep the darkness at bay. Because they were like, woof, this is the shortest day of the year, Winter right? Solstice. The solstice. Yep. Right, exactly. Like, oh, what are we going to do? We're going to light things on fire and we're going to bring as much light into this dark, dark day as we possibly can. And the Romans saw this and was like, yeah, this is cool. We're going to have a party. If we want to have a party all night, we need light. Let's burn things and light up the night. So the two things came together and they fire, happened in fire. December. <laughs> right. <laughs> and that that was what was going on in December around the 25th. But then as Christianity spread across Europe, and the Christian clergy were not really able to curb these pagan and Roman customs and celebrations. Um, they were like, we got to do something. And since no one really knew Jesus's date of birth, they adapted the pagan ritual into a celebration of his birthday. Mm-hmm. Right? They're like, all right, if you all want to have a party, let's give you something to celebrate. Let's celebrate the birth of Jesus because this makes good sense. And it's a good way of folding you in now to our religion. Assimilation. So, correct. Yep. Um, so that's how the birth of Jesus ended up falling on December 25th. Christmas trees. As a part of the solstice celebrations, the pagan cultures decorated their homes with greens in anticipation of the spring to come. Evergreen trees remain green during the coldest and darkest days, so they were thought to hold special powers. These are like miracle trees mm-hmm. that don't die in the winter. They must be special. Romans also decorated their temples with fir trees during Saturnalia, and decorated them with bits of metal. There are even records of the Greeks decorating trees in honor of their gods. Interestingly enough, though, the first trees brought into pagan homes were hung from the ceiling upside down. Hmm. <laughs> Could you imagine if we had Christmas trees hung upside down in our house? Like, that would just be weird. Could you? Like, yeah, yeah. I could just imagine they'd be like um, a safety hazard. Yeah, like, I don't, I don't know. Um, so then the tree tradition that we're accustomed to, the one that we now have in our house, hails from Northern Europe, where Germanic pagan tribes decorated evergreen trees in worship of the god Woden with candles and dried fruit. The tradition was incorporated into the Christian faith in Germany during the 1500s, and they decorated their homes, uh, their trees in their homes then with sweets, lights, and toys. Hmm. So the Christmas tree truly is a German tradition that got folded in um, to Christmas and around the 1500s. Woden! Yes. Wow. So now there's Santa Claus. <laughs> right. How did this guy get into the mix? So um, here comes Santa Claus. He's a pagan, <laughs> isn't he? I swear, he's he's a pagan. He's inspired by Saint Nicholas. So this Christmas tradition has Christian roots rather than pagan ones. So okay. he is he is the not pagan. <laughs> he he is a Christian tradition. Well, and this this I get because I've seen depending on what country you're in, you know, who's celebrating Christmas, mm-hmm. it's it's not really Santa Claus, like you said, Saint Nick, or it could be some religious figure that's usually depicted as a white man with a long beard mustache. Right. So um, it's based, inspired, we should say, inspired by Saint Nicholas, um, basically born in southern Turkey around 280 AD, <laughs> before it was Istanbul. <laughs> no, that's a city. Anyway. He was born around 280. He was a bishop in the early Christian church and suffered persecution and imprisonment for his faith. 
So he's coming from a wealthy family. He was renowned for his generosity toward the poor and and the disenfranchised. The legends surrounding him abound, but the most famous is how he saved three daughters from being sold into slavery. Mm. There was no dowry to entice man to marry a man to marry them, so it was their father's last resort. Saint Nicholas is said to have tossed gold through an open window into the home, thus saving them from their fate. So their father's last resort was to sell them into slavery, and Saint Nicholas was like, "I will save you." And he oh, gold and then them. I could see how that can kind of evolve into the breaking into people's homes to deliver gifts. <laughs> well, be- here it is. Legend has it that the gold landed in a sock drying by the fire. Of course it did. So children started <laughs> hanging stockings by their fires in hopes that St. Nicholas would toss gifts to them. So in honor of his passing, December 6th was declared St. Nicholas's Day. As time went on, each European culture adapted a version of St. Nicholas. So in Swiss and German cultures, Christkind, Christkind, I don't know how you pronounce it, or Chris Kringle, short for Christ Child, accompanied St. Nicholas to deliver presents to well-behaved children. Jiltemann was a happy elf delivering gifts via sleigh drawn by goats in Sweden. Then there was Father Christmas in England and Pierre Noel in France in the Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg, Lorraine, and France, and parts of Germany, he was known as Sinterklaas. Klaas, for the record, is a shortened version of the name Nicholas. This is where the Americanized Santa Claus comes from. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So there, that's Santa Claus. Now, Christmas in America. Here's where we... <laughs> Diverge. Kind of... We kind of get a lot of business in America because, as you remember, American is a melting pot, right? So we got we got a lot of people, a lot of different cultures and countries and coming together and immigrating to America. So here we go. Christmas in early America was totally a mixed bag. Many with Puritan beliefs banned Christmas because of its pagan origins and the raucous nature of the celebrations. Other immigrants arriving from Europe continued with the customs of their homelands. The Dutch brought Sinterklaas with them to New York in the 1600s. The Germans brought their tree traditions in the 1700s. Each celebrated in their own way within their own communities. It wasn't until the early 1800s that American Christmas began to take shape. Washington Irving wrote a series of stories of a wealthy English landowner who invites his workers to have dinner with him. Irving liked the idea of people of all backgrounds and social status coming together for a festive holiday, so he told a tale that reminisced about old Christmas traditions that had been lost but were restored by this wealthy landowner. Through Irving's story, the idea began to take hold in the hearts of the American public. So Washington Irving really started kind of pulling together all these different tales and being like, this is what Christmas is. And people were like, oh, okay, and started kind of paying attention. And then in 1822, Clement Clark Moore wrote an account of a visit from St. Nicholas for his daughters, also famously known as The Night Before Christmas. Mm -hmm. So in it, the modern idea of Santa Claus, right, a jolly old man flying through the sky on a sleigh took hold. So like through that story, we got this image of who Santa Claus was. And then in 1881, the artist Thomas Nast was hired to draw a depiction of Santa Claus for that famous Coca-Cola advertisement. I was just going to say, yep, yep, it was for Coke. Yep. It was. 1881, he created a rotund Santa with a wife named Mrs. Claus surrounded by worker elves. 
After that, the image of Santa as a cheerful, fat, white-bearded man in a suit became embedded in the American culture. So really, Christmas as we know it started in 1881, which actually isn't that long ago. <laughs> like, you know, we're talking like 150 years ago. Well, yeah, if you're talking the history of humanity. Could yeah. you imagine being that artist and being able to look back retrospectively and be yeah. like, wow, I didn't like to have that piece of art just become the blueprint for Santa Claus. I mean, what if yeah. he made him like polka dotted with like horns coming out of his eyeballs or something? It would have just been yeah. crazy. Could you imagine that? No. No. <laughs> Christmas would not be the same. It would not be okay. Uh, so um, as far as a national holiday in America, after the Civil War, um, we talked about how, um, you know, the country was always looking for ways to look past their differences, you know, try to unite after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1870, President Ulysses S. Grant declared it a federal holiday. And while Christmas traditions have adapted with time, um, basically Washington Irving's desire for unity and celebration truly lives on. It's the time of year when we we sort of fold everything in. Everybody kind of brings a little something different. You know, every family has a different kind of Christmas tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, we're always kind of adding and adapting. Um, so that was all really started with, with Washington Irving. And here we are. So that is a brief history of Christmas. See, see how brief it was? Um, and then what I did was I looked up some fun traditions in different countries, just mm-hmm. to give you an idea, since we, you know, we talked about America and what we do in a limit. And so some of the most interesting ones that I found um, were, for example, excuse me, um, in Sweden, there is such a thing as the Yule goat. <laughs> so <laughs> what, what do you Yule do to this goat. poor goat? <laughs> What's going to happen? It has been a Swedish Christmas symbol dating back to ancient pagan festivals. Okay. However, In 1966, the tradition got a whole new life after someone came up with the idea to make a giant straw goat, now referred to as the Gaval goat. According to the official website, the goat is more than 42 feet high, 23 feet wide, and weighs 3.6 tons. And let me guess, you set it on fire. Each year, the massive goat is constructed in the same spots, and fans can even watch a live stream from the first Sunday of Advent until after the new year when it's taken down. They don't set it on fire. They just build this giant <laughs> yule goat made out of but straw. What, what are you going to do with it afterwards? You behold it. You're going to you burn it. At it. It, no. it could be burning goat. Nope. You no. just look at it. You're like, behold this giant. I mean, you should behold goat. it and enjoy the wonder of it. And then once you're done enjoying that, you should just set it on mm-hmm. fire. So th- this kind of leads to another question that I have. And, and, and maybe you have it under your little catalog of factoids. But our friends, Mike and Jerry, they would celebrate Christmas, right? And then after mm-hmm. Christmas, they would take the tree. And they would ceremoniously burn it, the burning of the Yule. So Mm -hmm. what's the purpose of that? Do you know? Well, yeah, I mean, I I know that has some pagan roots. I did not come across that in what I was researching this time. But but they do it in, A, to get rid of their tree, 
right? Because they had they had the tree and they're like, well, we got to do something with it, so we're going to burn it um, instead of just you know throwing it out in the backyard to decompose. But they're they're doing it like a Yule log. The true Yule log was a tree that you burned on that shortest day of the year, Yule, which is the solstice. And that's when you're supposed to do it. That's what the pagans did was burn the trees in order to light up the night, right? Keep the darkness at bay. I thought it had something to do with like, like recycling or, you know, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. I don't know. Because, you know, life and death, the circle of life, all that. No. Okay. Nope. Left field. (laughs) All right. Sorry. Next. Okay. So another country that has an interesting um, Christmas tradition that that I found hilarious uh, is Japan actually? So because Christmas... they're they're not they're not native. <laughs> yeah, yes. go ahead. Okay, so although Christmas isn't a national holiday in Japan, you're correct. Um, an estimated one percent of the Japanese population is Christian. So that's just giving you a scape of how small um, the Christian population is in Japan. Its citizens still find an interesting and delicious way to celebrate Christmas. Rather than gathering around the table for a turkey dinner, like we do here in America at Christmas, all Japanese, not all, a lot of Japanese families head out to their local Kentucky Fried Chicken. Oh, yeah. The tradition began in 1974 after a wildly successful marketing campaign called Hirismasu Nuwa. Oh, God, I'm going to say it all wrong. I'm not even going to say it. Don't even say it. Kentucky for Christmas in Japanese. (laughs) However you say Kentucky for Christmas in Japanese. That was the the marketing campaign. And the fast food chain has maintained its Yuletide popularity, causing some people to order their boxes months in advance. Wow. Or stand in line for over two hours to get there. I've been dreaming of some deep fried chicken. On Christmas in Japan. So oh, now man. we know how the Japanese think. Well, Christmas. I know Japanese too. They love to uh, like absorb aspects of other cultures. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're all about culture sharing. I think it's kind of cool. And then just Kentucky to fried kind of, Christmas. Yeah, flip it on its head. Hey, yeah, we're going to throw some fried chicken in there. Yeah. Because you can. Because who, lo- who doesn't love fried chicken? Yeah, uh, the Japanese apparently. Uh, two hours. I would not stand in line for two hours for some Kentucky Fried Chicken. I'm just saying. Well, no. Uh, another one I really liked was um, Iceland. So in Iceland, similar to the 12 days of Christmas in the U.S., Iceland celebrates 13 days. And each night before Christmas, Icelandic children are visited by the 13 Yule Lads. They're little like, <laughs> like mischievous elves. The Yule Lads. They have outfits, um, don't they? They do. They're like union um, that's employees. A, that's a whole nother episode. I talked about that on Dead Time Stories once. I talked about the Yule Lads. Um, after placing their shoes uh, by the window, children place their shoes by the window, little ones will head upstairs to bed. And in the morning, they will either have received candy in their shoe, shoes from the Yule Lads, or they'll be greeted with shoes full of rotten potatoes if they're bad. Mm. Could you imagine waking up in the morning and finding rotten potatoes in your shoes? Well, you know what? It just kind of strikes me funny is like, okay, I can see you be good. You get a present in your sock. But if you're bad, you know, just leave the sock empty, right? Why would you put anything in there? It seems like a lot of effort just to procure rotten potatoes and then have to put them into a sock. It does. But that's what apparently what the bad kids got. Yeah. No, you just can't. So... Did the, the parents actually give them, like, rotten potatoes? 
just just to I mean, help fuel it the. It says <laughs> it says you, if you were bad, you're fuel the fairy tale. Potatoes. I mean, I don't know. Did you? Oh, I guess you didn't. You didn't it's a way to tell your Christmas. kid you're. I'm disappointed in you without actually saying it. I was always afraid I was going to get coal from Santa Claus. That was a real threat. I was like, I'm going to wake up one morning and there's going to be coal for me and no presents. I can see that. That never happened, thank goodness. I could totally see that, though. I I was definitely convinced that was coming for me. And I was like, oh, no, this is terrible. Okay. Um, Barbados. So a Christmas table in Barbados does not have turkey either. It's all about the ham. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ham decorated with pineapple and glazes and rum cake and then something called jug jug which is a dish inspired by the scottish influence on the island combining pigeon peas guinea corn flour herbs and salt meat Hmm. so you got to have your ham your rum cake and your jug jug if you're going to have christmas in barbados give me that jug jug yeah just some heads up about that interesting Um, and then there's Austria, because it wouldn't be Christmas if you didn't have at least one terrifying tradition. So the Alpine countries like Austria have a legend that a devil-like creature called Krampus joins their St. Nicholas festivities on December 6th. Children are asked for a list of their good and bad deeds. Good children are rewarded with sweets, apples, and nuts, and bad children worry what Krampus might bring on Christmas morning. Don't make the Krampus angry. Probably not rotten <laughs> potatoes. Definitely not rotten potatoes. But I mean, Krampus, a devil-like creature, like yikes! I mean, it's, I don't know. That's per score. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. So there's that, and then um, you know, some of the other ones are are not quite as interesting, but yet something to mention are countries like Mexico. All across Mexico, members of the church put on what they call pastorellas, which are shepherd's plays to retell the Christmas story. And it usually involves fairly elaborate costumes, kind of like the Christmas pageant is. Um, If you ever go to a Christmas pageant here in America, we tell the story, different churches do. But here, it's very much full of color. This is where the poinsettias come in because it's like big, vibrant red flowers um, are used... In, in retelling of these these stories um and sometimes it's in the form of a parade sometimes it's in the form of like an outdoor performance um or at a church so but they they spend time telling these stories throughout the season um and that's kind of how they celebrate and um i think that was it for the for the different countries that i thought i mean there, there were a lot of other ones on this list but those were the ones that really jumped out at me that i was like oh those are those are kind of neat. That's I mean, cool. I do, I do, you know, the theaters do Christmas shows or Christmas pageants or, you know, there's always Christmas performances going on. So mm-hmm. I feel like that's kind of universal. Do I we have anything rem- coming up in the neighborhood? Any, any Christmas performances that we know of theatrical? I mean, they've all happened. <laughs> they, they all are uh, actually right now. Mary Poppins is still going on. It's not really a Christmas show, but it's definitely a holiday treat. Um, at Quintessence, which is right there in the heart of Mount Airy. Um, but that's that's about it. Everything else is closed by the time we're, we're chatting now. Oh. So, you know, sorry. But yeah. you know, that, that doesn't mean that your church isn't having a Christmas pageant. I promise you, whatever church you go to, if you go to a church, someone's having a Christmas pageant this week. <laughs> well, I feel <laughs> like we got to start our own tradition, see if we can get that to catch fire. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, thanks for, uh, yeah. Well, thanks for (laughs) sharing all the little tidbits about Christmas. Of course. If you have some fun traditions um, that that you do and you'd like to share with us, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at whatdoyouknowgtown at gmail.com, or you can message us on Facebook or Instagram at whatdoyouknowaboutthat. Awesome. Please do. And stick around because we've got a very special musical guest joining us this afternoon for Who Are the Musicians in Your Neighborhood? So we'll be right back. You're listening to 92.9 FM G-Town Radio. All right, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for our our favorite segment, Who Are the Musicians in Your Neighborhood? And today, we're joined by none other than Mr. Kevin Hansen. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. So, Kevin, Mm -hmm. aside from the fact, I mean, you live like literally two blocks down the street from my house. I did, but I drove. You drove. It's too cold. Oh, my God. (laughs) It is. I don't blame you. It's okay. All's forgiven. But you have, it's funny, because when I moved in here... Our neighbors, the first thing they said, they were like, hey, are you a musician? I'm like, yeah, okay. They're like, do you know Kevin Hansen? Uh, I'm like, of course I do. So everyone, your name is like quite popular up and down the street in this neighborhood. I'm You're, a regional celebrity. You are. You are a regional celebrity. My fame extends two blocks. <laughs> <laughs> now, does that go everywhere you travel, though? Is it two block, like a two-block radius? Nope, where, it's no. just these two blocks. <laughs> just these two blocks. <laughs> nice. So, so tell us a little bit about yourself, because you know I know the some of the history of Kevin Hansen. You've got some notoriety, so so give us a little background here. Well, I moved to Philly. I grew up in Spokane, Washington, and I moved to Philly in 1992 with uh, my music professor and his family. I went to Western Washington University in beautiful Bellingham, Washington, which is north of Seattle, and um, moved here in '92, and then um, a, a year after that. Um, I met Craig Elkins, um, who would become the lead singer of Huffamoose. And I had been playing with Jim Steger and Eric Johnson, bassist and drummer, um, in a different kind of jazz project. And then we all got together and just like instantly, it was this like instant band. And I think it was like, it was like literally our first gig that we played with that lineup where there was a manager there who was like, you guys are going to be bigger than the Beatles, you know? (laughs) Um, and so we were, we were just together for a year, um, and we got to play Woodstock and signed a record deal. So the whole thing happened really fast. We signed with Interscope Records. Wow. Um, it took a few years for the record to come out. But all that time, you know, I was kind of honing my chops um, my, as being a guitarist in a, in a rock band. I had I'd been playing jazz really seriously um, throughout the later years of high school. My brother, Tim, is a drummer, so we would play Iron Maiden and Van Halen songs after school. And... Um, but we always had music in the house, so my influences kind of fell right in with what would become Huffamoose, which had kind of like, you know, a lot of jazz and R&B influence in it. And as the band progressed, it began, the band developed a much stronger rock identity, uh, but still with all these different influences. So that was kind of my path. My jazz background and rock background kind of fed into Huffamoose. We were together for like maybe six years or so. Did some touring in the in the U.S. and then the band kind of dissolved. I mean, we're still a band. Technically, we're still a band. We released an album a couple years ago, uh, but Craig are singers um, in L.A. Anyway, enough about them. 
This is about me, Eric. <laughs> so um, when Huff and Moose dissolved, I um, I was still playing a lot around Philly and, and still writing songs. And um, I was lucky enough to fall in with The Roots, the manager of The Roots. So I started doing some session work and then a little bit of touring with The Roots and uh, other things with, with Quest Love. The Illadelphonics was the house band for... Jay-Z's Fade to Black and Dave Chappelle's Block Party. Oh, wow. And through that network, through the roots, uh, it opened up a lot of just playing, writing, performing opportunities. And that kind of lasted for me up until the roots uh, got the gig on Jimmy Fallon, and then they moved. And since that time, you know, musically, I started teaching at University of the Arts and uh, writing a lot more songs. For, I have a band called The Fractals and uh, collaborating with other artists, still doing session work and stuff. So that's like the, the 25 cent tour of my career. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, yeah, so I, I didn't realize that there was that R&B vein that, that you were a part of. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I was familiar with like the rock background and not to date yourself too much here, but so you mentioned playing Woodstock. That was what year? 1994. Right. Yeah, Uh we won a radio competition. It was so funny because people said, oh, yeah, you guys are going to go to this radio competition. We just thought it was like kind of a joke. And then they're like, no, you, you're you playing at Woodstock. And we still thought, what? Are you kidding me? And then we <laughs> we drove up there after a gig, the Grape Street Pub in Maniunk. We got in the van and drove to Woodstock. And um, yeah, it was crazy. And we loaded up. We were late, of course. And the, they threw our stuff on the stage and this guy a roadie patted me on the shoulder goes you ready bud and then they flipped the stage around and it was you know an ocean of people People. and like you could hear your guitar through the mains it was insane that's incredible yeah it was it was pretty nuts so yeah i don't want to harp too much on the the huffamoose piece but you guys did have a a hit right yeah we had we had a well at first um the band kind of Became popular because of a song locally that WXPN was playing called James, which is an amazing song that Craig wrote, and XPN fans loved it. And then um, when we released the first single from the Interscope record, the song Wait, it's called Wait, that I wrote, became kind of like this modern rock, alternative rock song. And that got a bunch of, again, thanks to the Philly connection, that Jim McGuinn at um, Y100 was playing us like crazy and because he added it like back then it was like if one station added your song then all the other stations would add the song so we had like this national network set up for us wow. with key cities and you know we would go to Colorado and Dallas and you know all these all these different regions that were playing us so we had a healthy like two year tour just based on that one song wow yeah so you talked about teaching at University of the Arts and stuff. What, what would you say is your real focus right now? Are you more interested in, in creating studio music? Are you more interested in the teaching piece and the gigging out? Like, I mean, I know we're all returning to, to gigging after the pandemic sort of yeah. <laughs> halted all, all musicians. So like, yeah, what would you tell us is, is kind of your your drive and your focus right now? That's a great question. And I think about it, I talk about this all the time in that uh, I've been very, very lucky to have several different paths that remain sharply in focus. At UArts, I teach mostly songwriting classes now. So for me, it's an opportunity to practice what I preach and try all these songwriting techniques. So I'm in that world all the time as a songwriter and as a teacher. As a guitar teacher as well, I mean, I 
I practice a lot still. You know, I, I'm always searching for ways to work out the new sounds that I like, that I want to become part of my repertoire and my musicality. So teaching for me is an amazing gig. I love it. It keeps a guitar in my hand. It keeps me talking about songwriting and techniques. And, uh, you know, I've got all these brilliant, brilliant students, these college students who write songs that are like, you got to be kidding me. Um, and they turn me on to new music all the time, stuff that I would never hear. Um, and it's just, you know, there is no glut of amazing songwriters out there. There's incredible young songwriters that are releasing stuff all the time. It's just like it's, you know, because of like what we grew up on and with mass, mass exposure to, you know, whatever the popular song is now, it's, it's, it's not that anymore. And you got to do a little hunting and pecking. Um, but to get back to your question, uh, my main focus is songwriting, guitar playing and uh, recording and performing <laughs> and teaching. Nice. All, all the mean, above. Yeah. All those things. That's great. Um, yeah. that, that'll keep you busy. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Are, are you actually commuting downtown or are you doing most of your stuff online? Oh, no, we're fully, UArts is fully back in okay. in person. I also teach at Temple and they're all back. They've been back for, since last year. Cool. Yeah. So as far as the gigging piece then, maybe to talk about that aspect, considering folks coming back, when did the slope started to increase in a positive direction for you in terms of gigging? Um, you know, it's kind of funny. I was not the typical like out-of-work musician, even though at the very beginning I did write a song called No Gigs Hanson um, <laughs> because there was a while, a couple of months, where I just had no gigs. Um you could check that out on YouTube. Uh, uh, but I did get lucky in that uh, I was like one of the few working musicians because I had friends um, like uh, at 118 North. Um, I would just go play solo gigs, you know, and I got these opportunities to play, you know, solo gigs in the corner, whether I was had a mask on or so I didn't really stop working that much. The big the bigger paying gigs went completely away for about, you know a year, a year and a half. And, you know, I felt it financially as much as anybody else did, but I still remained active, you know, right. gigging, not as active. Yeah. So the uptick happened, I, you know, I would say the, about a year ago, the, the gig started coming back last late fall, winter. Okay. Yeah. And these are more like you said, you're sitting in the, the corner playing. So, so you're like playing more like, like jazz. I would play solo guitar or just be human jukebox and play and sing songs in right. the corner. Right. So to highlight that, too, you're also an established vocalist. And maybe segueing into the fractals a little bit, you're basically the front guy. Is that correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. The fractals has been a three-piece and a four-piece. We're now back to a four-piece. Um, but our kind of model for learning songs it goes back to what we did with Huffamoose where Craig it was mostly Craig and then when I started writing a lot of songs we would just bring in a song and just flesh it out as a band play it a few times and then the you know the songs evolve over the course of gigs but it's really it's just like new song arrangement band ideas record it and that's that's kind of what we're doing now cool and um, how, how frequent does, does do the fractals actually get together to just work on material um Gosh, not a whole lot over the past couple of years. Like we we're, we're playing like you know maybe four or five gigs a year as the Fractals. Um, but we've 
since last January we've been in the studio. So we've got we got three or four songs in the can and a, a couple of videos on the way too. Oh, nice, uh, which is great, and that's something that's definitely kept the band alive and excited about being a band. It's just recording new songs because it's easy to let stuff slip away. You know, I've got two teenage girls. Everybody in the band's, you know, family. Has, yep, has stuff to do. So you got to <laughs> real life steps in. Yep, you got to make it a priority. I realize that I'm offering all these answers to questions you haven't asked. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this is great, man. No, I'm loving it. So you're talking about this new album that you're working on. Is there a targeted release date for this? We've we've only recorded singles at this point, so we'll probably release it as an EP. Hopefully by this summer. We're going in. Uh, we got two dates in January coming up to record two new songs. So we'll have, you know, five or six songs maybe ready to go. But just because of the way that, you know, the music business works right now, it's much more advantageous just to sit on one song at a time, release them as singles, and then after a year, release the EP. Yeah, it's kind of how things are going now, especially with digital um, yeah, distribution. Right. What tune are we checking out? This is a song that the Fractals released a few years ago called Miss Kensington. I chose this song because it highlights some of the quirks of the band. I'm really happy with the way that uh, the arrangement of the song came out. It's it's a little bit different. It's a little all over the place stylistically. And it also has, I think I sent you guys the edit without the extended solo in there. But uh, yeah. So the song is called Miss Kensington, and this is not on an official album right this is just a just a single um that actually came out on an ep called sakes alive oh yes i see that yeah so that ep um we released it and it's out there now it's yeah it's living all right here let's take a listen okay
puts your faith in you-know-who On a hunch that he would see you through Now the man upstairs is watching you And his name ain't Jesus It's Carl That is great. I see what you mean about uh, the song has a lot of flavors yeah. in it in one song, and I think that's great. I mean, I'm I'm a fan of music that takes you on a little bit of a, of a trip, and I like it, it's a lot more rocky than I think I was thinking, just based on your description of the group and what you all do. And I was like, oh yeah, no, this rocks. <laughs> I like yeah. this a lot. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So I've had the pleasure of seeing the Fractals before, so I knew exactly what to expect. Uh, do you you? I would say you guys are like the musicians' band. You're the band for musicians, for audience members who are musicians. Yeah, we get we have a lot of musicians in the audience. That's true. Tell us where we can find you on the social. What's your what's your handle? Do you have a Facebook page? The Instagram? Where can where can we find you online? Yeah, um, Facebook is uh, the Fractals. Um, Instagram is the Fractals. I think it's they're all just the Fractals or the I, what's Instagram the Fractals band. Um, 
and I have been a little bit neglectful of it recently, but we've got to get back into we'll pro- forgive you. more of that stuff. Thank you. <laughs> like many of us. Yeah. Uh, we have a Bandcamp page um, that I'm going to be repopulating soon with a bunch of songs on there. And, Great. Um, and, and your music's just elsewhere? You can find you on, like, Apple Music and... Oh yeah, things. it's on all the streaming sites, and um, we're we have a, a label that's based just outside of Philly called Winding Way Records, and um, our label guy John um, is is pretty good about keeping all that stuff together. So we will be updating nice. it as these new songs are released. Very cool. We look forward to it. I look forward to, to hearing some new stuff. Thank you so much. Are you playing anywhere locally that say the average Joe could catch you? Uh, yeah, as a matter of fact, we're playing uh, the next kind of public gig is at uh, this great place in Jenkintown called Human Robot. And um, we're playing there. They build it as the Fractals, though it's not. The, it's the members of the Fractals with um, another brilliant musician named, um, not to say that we're brilliant musicians, but a brilliant keyboardist and singer named Keith Josa. Um, and that's on Wednesday, December 28th. At, oh, wow. From 12 to 4 p.m. Oh, nice. Yeah. I might have to come check that out. I think you should. It's like, that's prime time. I'm off the whole week, so. Well, come drink beer in the daytime. Yeah, that sounds like a perfect <laughs> activity for me. <laughs> right on. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, guys. Pleasure yeah, to be here. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for another episode of What Do You Know About That? Join us in a couple of weeks. We'll be joining you in the new year in 2023. Happy New yeah. Year, everyone. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. Have a wonderful holiday season and New Year. See you next year, everybody.